Today, we're continuing our series uh, when we're looking at some of the different denominations and traditions of the Christian faith. And in which this series, we're trying to understand how our brothers and sisters in Christ from a range of Christian traditions, uh, where they came from and where we come from, how we fit within the body of Christ. And our intent is to listen carefully to those from these authentically Christian traditions so that they might teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because even though we differ from them in some significant ways, even doctrinally so, we still want to learn from some of the things they have learned in following Jesus. So again, our aim in this series is not in any way to try to just uphold the Christian Missionary Alliance, our tradition, is somehow better than any other tradition. But rather it's to humbly listen and, and truly learn from those who walk in some of these other paths of following Jesus. So today we're going to have some history. And for some of you, it will be a review, maybe a refresher. We're going to look at some theology, some spiritual practices as well as we follow Jesus. And I encourage you, you might want to take notes in this that you can refer to later on as we walk through this. There's a sermon note sheet in the worship folder you received when you came in. So just as we begin, let me do a bit of a refresher. I just want to remind you what we consider to this point in the series. In the first week of the series, if you recall, we looked at the initial growth and development of that one holy Catholic church, what was referred to as the apostolic church. And, and during this time, the church was really one church. Although there were times of significant debate, great challenges, not all agreeing, it was not an easy time, but the church largely, apart from certain offshoots, stayed as one church through the first millennium. And really over time, as we saw, divisions did begin to grow more strongly, particularly between Eastern and Western Christianity, and all came to a head in 1054 A.D., when the Eastern Christians, who were focused on following the leadership of the Bishop of Constantinople, and the Western Christians, focused on the Bishop of Rome, had this great schism, divided from one another, and split the church between the East and West. So that's our kind of chart to this point. Now today, skipping over some years I hate to skip over, but we're going to jump forward in history several centuries to the era of the Reformation. And in this, we're going to see how rising leaders in the Western church, that Roman Catholic church, leaders like John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, Martin Luther, John Calvin, started calling for a reforming of the Western, the Catholic church, uh, to abandon some of its abusive or errant traditions and to return to authentic apostolic teaching. Now in this, as we'll see, particularly next week, we're going to look in this more detail. When it came to the 1500s, the Reformation, we'll be looking how that church, the Protestant church, branched off in these different ways. That makes it look clear with one branch. It was these kind of strands, really. Lutheranism, or Martin Luther, the Reformed tradition from following the teachings of John Calvin. Presbyterianism from John Knox in Scotland, particularly. And the Anabaptists, and that's from which the Mennonite tradition comes. And, and even that's a bit clean for Protestantism. That's a bit more what it started looking like in the branches of Protestantism. And again, we're going to look at that part 
of the traditions more next week together. But let's keep it simple about Protestantism this week. We'll keep it with one arrow because before we move to those other traditions and patterns, I want to focus on the Christian tradition that really refers to itself as the via media, the middle way. They view themselves as a via media, the middle way between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And that via media is the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And then again, the Church of England really sees itself as a middle way, a bridge between kind of Reformed traditions and Catholic traditions. So the Anglican Church would describe itself as being both Reformed and Catholic. That's why if you go to a high Anglican service, a more traditional service, you'll feel like you're in a Roman Catholic church. Or you can go to a low Anglican service, a more informal one, and you'll feel very similar to an evangelical Protestant service. Now, Anglicanism, understand there's 85 million members worldwide in the Anglican communion or Anglican church. That makes it the third largest church following after Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's not just limited to England or Europe. And in fact, there's been explosive growth in Africa in the Anglican church over the last two decades. And there are about 37 million Anglicans in Africa alone now. That's more than there are in England. And you might know that Anglican churches refer to themselves by different names. In, in, in Canada, it's the Anglican Church of Canada. But if you go to Ireland, it's called the Church of Ireland. That's actually the church my grandmother grew up in. If you go down to the States or to Scotland, it's called the Episcopal Church there. But just to simplify things today, I'm just going to refer to it all collectively as Anglican Church, right? And we're going to be guided in our study of this tradition by asking those three questions again. For one, where did Anglicanism come from? Uh, secondly, what do they believe? What do they teach? And then thirdly, seeing what can we learn from the Anglican tradition? So let's start with our first question. So where did the Anglican church come from? And I'll tell you, it's a crazy story. Let's just start with a two-minute review of the Reformation. Remember the Reformation, although there had been individuals over time, uh, like John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, who had been calling for the reforming of the church for like 200 years, we still look at one particular event as a starting point of the Reformation, right? October 31st, 1517, where a Roman priest, Roman Catholic priest named Martin Luther nailed his 95 criticisms, his 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now that's viewed as really the starting point for the Reformation. And as we'll see next week, when Luther did that, he wasn't intending really to break away from Roman Catholicism. He wanted to reform it from within, but that's not how things unfolded. And as you likely remember, from that point, the, the Reformation started spreading like wildfire across Europe, particularly, and had enormous impact over the coming years on the body of Christ, certainly, but even on that, beyond that, to, to culture itself. And, and so spread through Germany, Scandinavia, France, Netherlands, Switzerland. But in England, it was another story. In England... The, the Reformation really happened or followed 
a, a different pathway. I mean, English Christianity in the 14th and 15th centuries, which again, English Christianity at that time was Roman Catholicism. It was really marred by corruption and decay in England. I mean, hundreds of clergy had concubines, mistresses. I mean, many of the priests, they were far more focused on their income streams than on spreading the gospel. So it was in that setting, over the course of about 200 years, that voices began crying out for reform in England. And one of the first major voices for that kind of reform in England, and really in all of Europe, was a man called John Wycliffe. You might be familiar with his name. Now, Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. He's looked as one of the first voices long before Luther of calling for reforming the church. He was a biblical scholar. He was actually a a professor at Oxford University. And he is perhaps best known for translating uh, the scripture, the Latin Bible, into the English language. Now, understand this. Every copy of that Bible had to be transcribed by hand. And you know what Wycliffe's clarion call was to the church? Return to the teaching of Scripture to guide us. That was his call. And and for that cry, he was condemned as a heretic. Now, sometime after Wycliffe, there was another man you may have heard of named William Tyndale. He was actually a compatriot of Martin Luther. Tyndale also made the same kind of call for the church to return to the word of God to be guided from it. He was condemned as a heretic and was actually burned at the stake by the infamous King Henry VIII. You know Henry VIII, right? Let's learn a bit about Henry VIII. Henry VIII was actually a staunch Catholic who stood strongly behind Roman Catholicism. And understand this about Henry as well. He was a very capable theologian. He was married to an also devoted Catholic named Catherine of Aragon. Now, as the Reformation began spreading across Europe, Henry stood unwaveringly with the Pope and with the Catholic Church. In fact, he wrote, the king wrote, a theological treatise supporting papal authority and the seven sacraments of Roman Catholicism. The Pope of that day, Pope Leo X, was so impressed by Henry's support and writing that he bestowed on Henry the title, Defender of the Faith. Now, if you've paid attention to the queen, for example, in England, she is still called defender of the faith. But it had to be revised because of what subsequently happened with Henry, of what faith she was defending. So Henry then stood behind the pope. He stood behind Roman Catholicism until he fell in love or something like that, with one of his wife's attendants, who was a devoted Protestant named Anne Boleyn. So if you recall the history, to try to shorten it a bit, Henry asked the Pope to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so he could marry the Protestant Anne Boleyn. The Pope said, "Uh, no. 
And in response to that, to shorten the story even more, around 1533, 1534, Henry had the clerics, the leaders of the Church of England, the Catholic Church of England, annul his marriage so he could marry Anne Boleyn. The Pope excommunicated him that. Henry said, then, I am the leader of the Church of England. He took over control of the Roman Catholic Church of England, and he then banished his now annulled wife, Catherine of Aragon, away from the royal courts, forbidding her from ever seeing their daughter Mary. And Henry married Anne Boleyn. So understand this about it. Henry was supportive of Roman Catholic theology. He just wanted an annulment. Sounds like a really healthy way to start a tradition, doesn't it? Not quite as inspiring as nailing 95 theses to a church door. But there's more to this story. See, after Henry died, his son ruled for a few, few years. And his son took the Church of England even deeper into the waters of Protestantism. And that continued on until he died. And when he died, Henry's daughter Mary, his daughter through the Catholic Catherine of Aragon, came to the throne. Can you guess what Mary had in mind? Anyone thinking revenge? Have you heard of Queen Mary? You remember what her nickname was? Bloody Mary. Because when she came to the throne, she returned the Church of England under Roman Catholic rule. It was Roman Catholic again. In the subsequent five-year reign, she had 300 of those Protestant leaders burned at the stake. Bloody Mary. So picture it, England separated from Roman thousands, back under it once again. Until Henry's other daughter from the Protestant Anne Boleyn came to the throne. Her name was Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth came to the throne. She looked at her nation now and saw a nation of, up of upheaval. Divisions discord religiously, understandably now, between Protestants and Catholics with their own country. And so to keep her country from falling into civil war, Elizabeth tried to identify a via media, a middle way that would try to appease Catholics and Protestants. And so she separated again from papal authority, brought the Church of England into its own leadership under the rule of the monarch. And that she developed this book of common prayer, a, a book that was intended to bring some clearly Catholic elements to the worship of the church and clearly Protestant elements to the worship of the church. Again, many were not happy with this. It really didn't please very many at all, but it kept the nation from falling into civil war. And so for the 45 years of her reign, really a brilliant reign, politically speaking, she managed to keep the peace. Now, just to add to the story, Elizabeth was succeeded on the throne by James I. You all know him. James I came to the throne. He really despised both Catholicism and Calvinistic Protestantism. And so he called for the translating of a new English Bible that wouldn't be influenced by Catholic or Calvinist editorial comments. And that resulted in a biblical translation that I would think some of you here might be holding in your hand right now. Do you remember what it's called? 
the King James Version. That's where it comes from. And so we have this roller coaster story. Not exactly blessed are the peacemakers, is it? But it gives you a sense how closely rated Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism are. And that's why the Church of England, even to today, doesn't see itself as kind of a new branch as strongly separating as Protestantism does. But they just see themselves as a slight revision of the ancient English Catholic Church. And it also gives you some sense of the both deep history and the wounds of the Protestant-Catholic divide in Great Britain. Right? Think Northern Ireland. In fact, it wasn't even until about the 19th century that non-Anglicans could even vote or, or hold political office in, in Britain. So that leads us to our second question then. Okay, if that's our brief history, what do they teach? <laughs> what do they believe? Now, Anglican doctrine, you can be summarized in the 30, 39 Articles of Religion, if you've heard of that. Now, the 39 articles, if you look it up or read it, it would look something like this. It's 39 really elements of faith, some of the key points of doctrine, followed by a few lines or maybe a paragraph. Now, if you were to read through those 39 articles, I would guess on nearly all of them you'd say, boy, I could completely agree with that. I mean, for example, listen to what they say about Scripture. This is Article 20 and what it says about Scripture. It is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that to be repugnant to another. And we'd say, yeah, we'd agree with that, right? Or what about salvation? Article 11, this is what it says about salvation. We are counted righteous before God only through the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith, and not through our own works or deservings. Would we not say right on to that? That's part of the 39 articles of the Anglican tradition or faith. Now, along with those 39 articles, Anglicans also speak of the three fundamental ways how we come to understand what we believe and how we're to practice this faith. It's often referred to as a three-legged stool of Anglicanism. And those three legs, those three elements, are for one, Scripture. Scripture is the first and primary guide. Secondly is tradition. And by tradition, they don't mean we've always done it that way. But rather, they refer specifically to the great councils of the early church and the creedal statements like the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, that those guide us in understanding what this faith is about. And the third leg is that of reason. And by that, they mean kind of wise reflection led by the Holy Spirit considering the context of ministry. So they would point to Scripture, first of all, tradition, and reason. Now, as we'll see again next week, you'll notice that's quite different in some ways from the, one of the main calls of the Protestant Reformation. If you remember that call, we'll look at it next week again, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Protestantism largely would say scripture alone is our rule of faith, apart from tradition or reason. Scripture alone. So that's one of the ways that you see some of the Roman Catholic influence on the Anglican Church. Now, if you've followed the news in recent years about the Anglican Church, you'll, you'll know that 
There have times been very strong, different doctrines in the Anglican community. And probably the most prominent in recent years has been over the understanding of homosexuality, particularly about the ordination of gay priests. Now, this helps us some understanding. So unlike the Roman Catholic Church, where the magisterium, the Pope and his leaders, would say, this is the way we're going to do it, the Anglican churches have far more autonomy to decide what they're going to do. Because there's no one, again, different from the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Church, there's no one leader or city or church that holds ultimate authority over all of Anglicanism. But rather, each nation or region has its own authority. Now, you might think, well, what about the Archbishop of Canterbury? He is the leader of the church, the Anglican church in England, but he's just a symbolic head to the Anglican community worldwide. So that's part of a way where Anglicanism reflects its Protestant influence or heritage, allowing more freedom in understanding between each of the gatherings. But collectively, again, this is what I want you to catch for one. This concept of the via media, that middle way, it influences Anglicanism to this very day. And then so that prompts us to the third question I want to consider. So what can we learn from the Anglican tradition? And again, I'll say this. With each of these traditions we're looking at in this series... There, there's so much more we can learn than, than what we're just touching on. And really, I'd say this. We, even our own tradition, has, has learned from, borrowed from the Anglican tradition in a range of ways. But I'd say, for one, we can, we can learn from Anglican history. That's one of the things we can learn. I mean, as we saw, there are some dark beginnings to the Anglican tradition, right? It's a very tragic, unchristlike behavior by those who are supposedly over the body of Christ. But there's a darkness in nearly every tradition, sadly, in history. But this is what I want you to catch. Despite that darkness, what's actually inspiring to see is how God has brought such goodness, how, such beauty, such spiritual life out of such tragic, almost anti-Christ behavior at times. I mean, just think, you look at Anglican history, think of some of the wonderful Anglican scholars and teachers that we look to even today. Think of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. John, a great preacher in the Anglican church, started a movement of devotion. Charles, that incredible hymn writer. We just got finished singing one of his songs, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, during the Advent season. These great brothers, for all of their life, they were in the Anglican church. They remained within it. John saw his own movement as really part of the Anglican church as a whole. Beyond the Wesleys, think of C.S. Lewis, his Chronicles of Narnia and other books, fantastic books he's written. Or think of the theologian J.I. Packer or other great pastoral leaders, John Stott, Bishop J.C. Ryle, these great teachers of God's word. Or we look at the Anglican church and see some of the ways it's influenced ministry. I mean, just one example is the Alpha ministry. Many of you have been part of that? Certainly, I would guess you've heard of it. I mean, it's been enormously influential. It was an Anglican church, Holy Trinity Brompton Church, in the heart of London that initiated that Alpha ministry. And I think we could say this easily. Alpha has been one of the greatest tools of spreading the gospel of evangeliz evangelization really in the past century in the body of Christ. 
And it all just reminds. And, and really, as you reflect on that, in light of its beginnings, what has come out of the Anglican Church, it, it reminds us, it encourages us again this week, that despite our brokenness and, and fallenness and mess, Jesus says this in, in, in Matthew 16. It reminds us, Jesus said, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You might bring your brokenness, your fallenness into the body of Christ, but God's going to build his church. But today particularly, I want to focus on one thing that I want us to reflect on of what we can learn from our Anglican brothers and sisters. And it really ties back into the book that after the Bible is the most important book in the Anglican tradition. And it's called the Book of Common Prayer. And really, it's a book that brings together, it brings orders of worship together with prayers, scripture readings, the Psalter. It really has a pattern for you, you being able to read through and, and pray through the Psalms in two years. It's a, it's a book for private devotion and public worship together. And it's all gathered together in, in one book. And he's asked, so why is this book so important, the Anglican tradition? And, and really, it is telling that as the Anglican church developed, one of their first steps was not to write a great, enormous, systematic theology. Anglicans, they, they have their 39 articles of religion as we looked at, but those are fairly simple and, and succinct and reflect kind of their core beliefs and understanding of the faith. But they really did not firstly try to develop some exhaustive theologies or articles of faith. Instead, what they developed was, think of it, a book of common prayer. And really to guide in personal, devotional, and corporate worship life through all the range of events and seasons of life. You, you can see the book online at prayerbook.ca if you want to take a look at it. And it's a book that contains prayers and scriptures for all the range of events and seasons of life. You can look and find prayers and scriptures for saying after the birth of a child. Prayers and scripture for saying when you're at work. Prayers in Scripture for when you're out at sea, eating you seafarers here. Prayers in Scripture for reading at a family meal. It's almost as if the Anglican church was saying, do you want to know what we believe? Then look, this is how we pray. This is how we worship. This is how we live. And, and that actually leads to the foundation of Anglican identity and confession. And it is this. It's a Latin phrase Lex orandi, lex credendi. Do you want to say that with me? Lex orandi, lex credendi. To, to kind of roughly translate it, what that means is the law of prayer is the law of belief. Meaning, to put it another way, that the way we pray, the, the way we worship, the way we walk in obedience to God in life forms, molds the way we believe. Now, that's different than we normally would think of it. I mean, in the West, we would tend to think that what we believe, if we get our doctrine right, our beliefs right, that will then mold the way we live. That's true to a degree. But Anglicanism focuses on what really is more of a Hebraic and Eastern understanding of the spiritual life of discipleship, that we are molded by the way we live. Now, again, think of it. That actually reflects the way Jesus did it. That's the way Jesus discipled his followers. 
I mean, when Jesus, when he called people to himself, he didn't begin by laying out a great deal of doctrine, as we've mentioned before. Kind of intriguingly, he didn't begin that way. But when Jesus began, he really began by saying simply what? Listen to God's word. And and again, the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or or go to chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Or go to chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth, the author of this gospel. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And don't you think, but Jesus, we haven't seen your statement of faith. What what are you going to teach us? Rather, Jesus had his disciples follow him and had them first begin to live life the way he lived life. The first thing he really did was begin to have his disciples walk in community as he did. Understand scripture, the word of God as he did. Begin to pray as Jesus prayed. Begin to serve others the way Jesus served. To begin to love others, particularly those who are most unlovable, the way Jesus loved them. So that through the way they were worshiping, living life, they would begin to be molded in what they believed. So for example, Jesus didn't begin by saying to his disciples, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. If you believe that, you can follow me. But rather, Jesus simply said, follow me. Live life the way I live life. And only then, only after they'd been living life the way Jesus had been living life, only after they'd been praying the way Jesus had been praying for nearly three years, only then did Jesus then say to them, okay, now, now that you've lived this way, now who do you say that I am? To put this another way, as we have said before, this Hebrew, Eastern way of understanding it is that orthopraxis, meaning right practice, right living, can lead us towards orthodoxy, right understanding, right beliefs. Now, and by that it doesn't mean just kind of rote, lifeless, observant of spiritual ritual, but really in faith, authentically seeking, obeying. Beginning to mold, saying, I want to follow, I want to live this way, so I'll be molded in my understanding of you, Jesus. And and really, friends, to personalize that here for Southview, that's why we have our five core practices that we encourage, that are reflected in lobby here at Evergreen, as you walk out of here, and the pictures that are seen there. I mean, like our Anglican friends, we believe that we can mold the way we believe. We can grow in our understanding of Jesus. By, by the way we choose to worship and live life. And so we encourage these five core practices that were, they're both reflected in the life of Jesus and in the life and teaching that we see of the church in Scripture. And the five, if you remember, are for one community. Uh, uh, the Word of God, prayer, serving, and, and loving others. And, and by integrating these practices in our lives, we believe we, you know, we can start to mold our understanding of the faith. So really here, we do not say, get all your beliefs in order, and and then start doing these practices once you understand things rightly. But rather we say, you know, if if your heart is seeking God, even if you're not sure, begin to integrate these practices in your life, 
And, and they'll start to mold you in understanding the faith. You'll start to understand that there's a Holy Spirit that can guide you as you serve others and, and find God's sufficiency being provided as you serve others. And so likewise, an Anglican book of common prayer really admirably, inspiredly, gives patterns, practices for life. And I'll tell you, I've used it at times in my own devotional life in different seasons where I, I will use their guidance. There are three scripture readings for the day and let that be my guide in my devotional times. I'll look to the prayers, even as Jane shared here in her, in her morning gathering, shared that prayer from the book. There's prayers there that I've I used for a morning or midday or evening prayers and just read through them and be guided by the words of those who have gone before us in faith. Because believing this, lex orandi, lex credendi, the way we worship, the way we pray, the way we live our lives can mold what we believe. And friends, that's also the case uh, as we come to this meal, to the table of Holy Communion. Jesus has invited us to come, participate in this meal. And if your faith is in Christ, if you want Jesus, even if you have deep questions, boy, I invite you to partake of this meal. If your heart is not there, boy, there's no embarrassment at all in passing these elements by. We're just so thankful you're here with us. But we want to come to this table now and really grow in our faith as we partake of this meal together. And to prepare us for that, we're going to be reading some of these scriptures that might be on your heart to God as, as ways of praying to God as we come to this table. So let me lead us here in prayer and, and then Mosaic Kelly will lead you and here we'll move in the time of praying scripture. So Father, we come again at wonder with your goodness. Even at wonder at how you can bring such goodness out of darkness. How you've expressed that in the tradition of Anglicanism, and really in all traditions and even in our lives, we thank you how you bring goodness out of our darkness. And we thank you how you invite us to come to this table, to, to remember and receive from Jesus. In this, we pray to you in his name. Amen.